tonight we're going to read about a flood in Genesis, a big flood. But did you know Genesis is not the only ancient text to provide a flood narrative? Yeah, it turns out myths like Gilgamesh and Atrochus have a flood too. Now this is important to understand because it actually provides the cultural backdrop to the ancient Near Eastern world. Many people knew these myths and actually believed them. Now, yes, they all have a flood, and yes, they all have a boat, but once you get into the myths, it's easy to see how different Genesis is. Let's take Atrochus for example. Now, he's the protagonist in his story, and it begins with three gods complaining with each other about the amount of work that they have to do. The god Enlil comes up with the idea of giving farm labor to the rebel gods, but the god Enki comes up with the idea of creating humans to do the work. That's right, the gods were too lazy so they created humans. Do you see how this is already different than Genesis? In Genesis, God effortlessly spoke things into being. Now, back to Atrochus, humans are overpopulating the earth and they make lots of noise. The noise, noise, noise. The gods just cannot stand it. So they come up with an idea to flood the earth and kill all of the humans. But the god Enki warns Atrochus, so in seven days he builds a boat and brings his family in the boat and it rains for seven days, creating a flood. In Genesis, God created the flood because of humanity's wickedness, not because of the noise. And after all, the ark is about salvation and recreation. It's amazing how many people back then believed in gods who were just so selfish and evil. Imagine hearing the words of Genesis against this cultural backdrop. Oh, and one last thing. If all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures were saying that there was a flood, then there probably was a flood, just saying. So there you go. A little bit about the flood, and that's enough today for our historical minute. So welcome, welcome. We're picking up in Genesis chapter 7 today, uh, continuing on this narrative of Noah and the ark. In the first line in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Noah, you know, I was talking with Pamela one time, and she was talking about when she first started working here, and, and she made, just made this comic, she, comment. She says, you know, when you really get into the Bible, it's a lot different than the children's stories that you learn about, right? There's a lot more depth. There's a, it takes some wicked turns, you know, especially in the flood narrative, right? You, you know about the flood, you know about the arky arky and the animals, and it's all kind of happy and cool and the rainbow. And, um, but as you get into it, you start to see the why behind the flood. You start to see God's sadness on why he had to send the flood in the first place. We talked last week about how man just had gone off its rails, all except for Noah had abandoned him, had given up on him, had gone the other way. And so God decided it's time to, to wipe out this creation that I made. I made you to love you, he said, but none of you seems to love me but Noah. We talked about Noah's righteousness, and it wasn't a righteousness that was complete obedience. It was a righteousness that was accredited to him by faith. Another word for faith, and this is important, I think, to understanding Scripture, another word for faith is trust. Noah trusted God. So Noah, 120 years prior to the flood, said, I want you to build me an arky arky. I want you to build a boat. I want you to take all the animals on the earth, find them two by two, and bring them on the boat. And then I'm going to send a flood to rid this world of man whom I created because of their evil. And Noah trusted. 
I can't, I don't know how, what's the longest you've trusted God for something. You know, I was in my 20s and I trusted for 10 years for God to bring me Beth, which is my wife. And it was exciting and I was glad, but it was miserable during my 20s. Can I emphasize that? I, I didn't like being patient. I didn't like waiting on God. I didn't like keep praying for something over and over and, and not finding the answer. Noah prayed for 120 years. God had revealed what he was going to do. And he told him what he wanted to do. He says, okay, now be about the business of getting it done. And so Noah preached during this time to the people of his day. He shared with them God's, uh, how God upset God was with their evil and the ways that they had gone. He pleaded with them to return to the Lord. He pleaded with them to follow the Lord, to stop sinning, to repent. Over and over he called to them to prepare for the flood. But there's a whole world that, except for him, didn't trust God. We talked a little bit how our world today is maybe turning away from God, but there's still plenty of people that trust the Lord with all their heart. There's still plenty of people calling out to him and praying for our world, for our culture, for our city, for our state and country. There's still people that are faithful to the Lord. In Noah's day, there wasn't a one. Again, we talked about how it would be weird if Noah didn't face some kind of persecution during that time. All that is the backdrop of chapter 7, verse 1, when the Lord finally comes to Noah and says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I see, Noah, that you're the only one that seems to trust me. Now, Noah had to be a person of no little means to put this kind of ship together. Even during 120 years of, of compiling the, 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 the different materials and, and getting the, the people together to build the ark and all those different things. And so when God was asking him to get on the boat, no one knew his plan, but he was asking him to leave everything that he had known for 500 plus years now, 600 years, to leave everything he had, to leave all the relationships that he knew, to leave everything. Even the world as he knew it would change. And to get into this little box, right? Well, it was a big box, but to get into this ship with his family. And it wasn't just Noah that had to make that decision. His wife had to go too. She had to leave everything she knew. We'll read later a story about Lot and his family, and, and they didn't do as well as Noah did in his family. His kids had to make the decisions, their spouses. They chose to trust God. As crazy as what God was saying seemed to them, as weird as it was that all these animals were brought to them and that they were now on the boat, each one of them had to choose to reject this world, to leave everything they knew for in a very, at least in human terms, very uncertain future. They would be put in this ship, largely without light. They would be put on the ship for over a year. But one by one, they got on the boat. They decided to trust in God. And he says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, uh, the, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds and the, of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So for all the animals of the earth, it was two by two, but for the clean animals, and what this speaks of two is that God had not only talked a little bit about the sacrificial system prior to Moses, he'd also distinguished between clean and unclean animals. So much so that clean animals generally were the ones that um, 
you could domesticate, right? Cows and sheep and different things like that. And God asked him to bring seven of each ones of those, right? Seven pairs or seven of them. Three male and females and the next one, which seemed to be explicitly for sacrifice. Why he did that, you could just kind of surmise to make them grow faster, right? To allow them to provide uh, not wool for the families, to allow them to provide uh, milk for the families, whatever it might be that they might grow quicker and quicker and multiply on the earth with speed. In verse 4, it says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the earth, or from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So God tells Moses or to Noah to get on the boat, to get everything ready. Probably the seven days accounted for all the last-minute things that you'd have to do to get all the animals in their stalls, to get everybody prepared, to make sure the food was all secure, to make sure the ship was ready to go. Seven days, and then it was time. And so in obedience to God, again, it had never rained, right? It, 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 they knew it was wicked, but God had never come down in this kind of force ever before it seemed almost incredible, but in trust, total trust of God, they got onto the boat, they got everything ready. They were willing to leave everything. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Again, I, I can't overestimate what an incredible leap of faith this is. They had to trust God implicitly. They were willing to leave everything. Of clean animals and of the animals that were not clean, of the birds and of everything that creeps along the ground. Two and two, male and female, again depicting not only marriage but also the idea of propagating the species. Went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And all of a sudden, though it had never rained, it started raining. You can't imagine that Mo hadn't been preaching this whole time, trying to warn, especially those close to him, to flee from the coming wrath, right? He was a man after God's own heart. He trusted God completely. He would have been sharing with the people, especially that were closest to him. They all mocked him. None of them believed. None of them got on the boat during those seven days, though they must have been pleading and then it started to rain. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deeps burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. It's kind of an important point. When it flooded the earth, it flooded it from two directions. There was a firmament, if you remember from Genesis 1, that surrounded the earth, kind of like... Um, a water vapor, uh, which was accounted for a lot of water that surrounded the earth at this time. It was a firmament, a secondary area of water that God had created. In many ways, it was like a thermal blanket to the earth. It would have created sort of a greenhouse effect, allowing, things to, allowing them not to have windstorms or rainstorms or anything of, the, of that nature, to allow things to grow in different ways, like in a greenhouse. It would have been an ideal setting. It would have been protected from the UV rays, which would account for maybe them living longer years and the such. All of a sudden, God put a spigot on that, and the heavens emptied. That firmament of vapor emptied over the next 40 days. There's no amount of atmospheric uh, situations that would allow it for, to rain over the whole earth for 40 days, and so the only way that happened is 
by the fact that this firmament was emptying. At the same time, he said, he opened up the, the windows of the deep, and these great windows burst forth into the earth. And so these caverns of water apparently under the earth, they also started flooding from the bottom up. And so you had rain coming from the top and the oceans rising from below. And the people would have been watching this. There would have been time initially to go, what in the world is this? Do you think they would have been uh, freaking out just a tad based on what Noah had projected? What he had preached to them would happen. Do you think there would have been some scrambling to try to put some kind of vessel together during those days? Absolutely. It would have been hard. The rain would have been coming down in buckets. But they were scared. They had never seen rain. This seemed to jive with what Noah had been preaching all those years. And all of a sudden, start, you remember those pictures of the tsunami in Japan? As the seas would grow and just start to cover the earth? Imagine the devastation. Imagine the speed at which the earth started to cover itself. There was no time, and yet there was time to realize that this was a punishment from God. That this had been prophesied by Noah. And they could tell because Noah was in a boat. He was ready for the whole thing. Can you imagine people going up to the boat saying, let us in? Noah, let us in. And the cries that would have been going on. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Jepheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered into the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two by two, all of flesh in which there are breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went, into, went in as God commanded him, and then the Lord shut him in. You have to imagine that the door to this vessel was quite large, for, at least for like an elephant to get through. It would have been difficult in those days to patch that from the inside to make sure that water wouldn't come gushing in from the sides, it, especially the kind of water that we're talking about and for the duration we're talking about. So God in his mercy shuts them in so that that didn't happen. He protects his kids in the boat. He protects all of those that he had warned. And he shuts them in. Very cool and very scary all at the same time. Like, we can't get out now, right? We're shut in. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Again, we had talked about some people thinking, or at least telling these stories, that it's a regional flood. It's hard to imagine a regional flood covering all of the mountains that we know. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them up to 15 cubits deep. I, one commentator kind of made the, the point that the ship probably... Um, under the water was probably 15 cubits at least down, right, sitting in the water. And so the reason they knew it was 15 cubits at least deep is because they weren't running aground. Who knows if that's right, but I thought that was interesting. 
The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. So 40 days of rain, but the earth kept flooding. The waters of the deep kept pouring in until all of a sudden the whole earth was covered Anybody who had kind of put a ship together was now out of food and passed. Nobody survived, not one. And then I want you to think of just the silence that would replace the cries and the animals and the different things. You still hear the sea, right? And the mist of the sea and the waters. Maybe you hear some dolphins out there because they apparently made it, right? But, but every living thing had ceased, there was nothing left. I don't know if you've ever been out to sea where you couldn't see anything, any land at, at all. It's kind of a, a pretty surreal experience. You're just sitting there and there's nothing in any direction. There was nothing on earth left. Just them and the fishies in the sea. And after 150 days, it says, but God remembered Noah, which is good, right? And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The word for wind is actually the word for spirit in Genesis 1-2. Kind of a neat parallel, right? In the beginning, the spirit hovered over the waters. In the flood, the spirit or the wind blew over the earth and the water subsided again through the work of God. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed. And so the rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated to this point, at least in, in the seventh month, which would have been five months into this trip on the boat. On the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest in the mountains of Aratat, which is uh, eastern Turkey, southern Russia, northwestern Iran, somewhere in that area. That's all we know. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and the 10th month, which would have been now eight months into the trip, the tops of the mountains now were seen. At the end of 40 days, now nine or ten months into the trip, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. Before we get too far into this, I also want you to think on what's happening to the earth at this time. The incredible force of water coming up from the deep is restructuring a lot of what they knew as home. The waters, as they would recede, would create new rivers and, and canyons and, and all sorts of things, different sedimentary stuff. It, as the waters would gush one way or the other, it was reshaping the earth as they knew it. It was not going to be the same earth. It was not going to enjoy the firmament that provided that greenhouse effect. It was going to be harsher, this new world. It was not going to look the same. Things were not going to grow the same. It would be very, very different, and yet God would provide. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened up the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven and went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to rest her foot, and so she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand out and took her in and brought her into the ark with him. 
The raven is a little bit more of a sturdy bird, a little bit more of a scavenger. It would, it would tend to try to go out and see if it could forge its way forward, but it couldn't find anything, and so it kept around the ship, right? Waiting for some place, having a place to, to lay, lay its feet if it needed to stop. The dove is a little bit more of a delicate bird. It, it looks for food. It needs food and not finding it, it returned. So he put out his hand. He took her in and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly picked olive leaf. Again, one of God's miracles that starting to grow again the earth with vegetation. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Again, I want you to understand the incredible patience of Noah and his family, the incredible trust they had. They got on the boat nine to ten months ago. It had been resting now for four, three or four months, right, on the top of Veritat. They were itching to get out of the boat. They wanted to go stretch their legs. They wanted to get out of the smell. They wanted to get out of the confinement. But they were scared out of their minds at what might be out there. And so he took steps one by one, and he let the birds out to see what would happen. In the 600th year, in the 601st year, in the first month, and the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. They had been on the ship now a year and 17 days. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth dried out, and God said to Noah, come out from your ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your, wi- and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you on the face of the earth, uh, with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the face of the earth went out by families from the ark. And so they all departed into this brave new world. It was a different world, but God had already provided vegetation. He'd already provided for each of the animals to be able to, to multiply and to grow its herd, so to speak. And so they began charting out a new course with the whole world before them and nobody else there. They trusted that God would protect them so that they could spread out on the earth. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So one of the first things that Noah goes and does after being saved from this devastation, after being saved and basically God saying, I'm starting over with you guys, is he built an, offer, uh, it built an altar and gave an offering to the Lord. The thing that scripture shares all the way through is that God will not despise, that God loves a humble and contrite heart. This offering was not just one of thanksgiving, but it was one acknowledging the sinfulness of them and the grace and the mercy that was required to save them. They were grateful for the forgiveness, for the grace, for the mercy God showed them in allowing them to survive. They were overwhelmed with his grace. And they were very cognizant still of their sin. 
And so when God said, I'll never again do this, it gave peace. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In response to their hearts of repentance and in response to their hearts of, a great, of gratefulness and appreciation, God says, I'm not going to do this again. You have to understand, God, think of it as parents. And you didn't create your kids, but you had a part in it, didn't you? I mean, in their, in their chromosomes and all that kind of stuff. Would it grieve you to wipe your kids out? More than you could ever understand. God wiped out his creation, the ones that he had formed and knit in their mother's womb, the ones that he had created to love them. It grieved God to do what he did, but he's also a just God. God is both law and gospel. He's a God of justice and a God is love. You can't keep on going and rebelling against God without consequence. He's long-suffering and he's patient and he'll work with you and he'll keep calling out to you again and again and again. But he's a God of law, God of law and he's a God of gospel, a God of love. But he's both. And in repentance, not that he was sorry necessarily, but he looked upon what he had done and it grieved him to the point where he said, Neither, never again will I do this. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. And then he gives a little caveat, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, until I come again at the end, we're going to just keep going. Even though every inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. I think that's a hard one for us to embrace. We like to think that there's some good in us. We like to pat ourselves on the back for something, right? But the reality is, is all the good that comes from us, all the good in the world is from God. Just as a, an evidence of that, when a culture turns their back away from God, does it get better or worse in terms of morality, in terms of God's truth? It always deviates from it. It always has negative consequence. It always gets worse. And so whenever there's a culture that starts to leave God and his truth, things don't get better. They get worse in a hurry. That's what happened in Noah's day. It's happening today. Not that we're anywhere close to Noah's day. But we've started the about face, or at least continued it to a place that is now today. Our natural inclination is to rebel against God to assert ourselves as God, to not want to follow his commands because we think we know better, because we think we can do better, because we want to have more fun. It's called rebellion and it's called sin and it always complicates and creates negative consequence in our life. And yet even knowing that, that there's a good chance that this happens again, right? That all of mankind rebels against me, God decides to do it a different way. And time after time after time, he preserves a remnant on the face of the earth. Never will we get down to eight again, at least maybe not until the end, right? But, but he's always provided a remnant. Things got so bad at the Tower of Babel, he spread people out again by diversifying their tongues, their languages. Things got so bad again with Abraham. He says, I'm starting over with you and your family. And I'm going to create something new and something better. And then even he had to destroy Israel because they had abandoned him. 
And then Judah, not so long after that. But in each case, he provided a remnant, a people that were faithful to him, that he would lift up and grow again and protect. To be honest, it's why you're here today. You are the remnant. The people that God has protected to this point in history, a people that still loves God, that still is trying to trust God with their lives, that still calls him Lord. Your evidence of this promise that's gone from way back in Noah's day to today. And it's because God loves you that you're here. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And so, wait, I have a question before I go to that. Do you think some people turned back to God when it started raining? I bet they all did. And if they did, would they go to heaven? Um, I don't think they turned back to God. I think they were scared out of their mind that they were going to die. They were coming to grips with the fact that they had just been judged and found wanting. And they were scared. And I bet a lot of them called out to God at that point. Did they mean it in their heart only God could judge that? Doesn't seem to indicate that a lot of people were saved at that moment. That their judgment had finally been confirmed. That it was too late. But I bet at the end times, I know at the end times, because scripture says that at the end that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Some to their salvation and those that didn't believe to their condemnation. But they will know, no matter which way they go, that Jesus is Lord, just like the demons, just like Satan does. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which at this point was a pretty huge mandate. It was like at the beginning with Adam and Eve, go, go, go. But notice here, he doesn't say, you know, just sleep with whoever. He says male and female, it seems to lift up again the family. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast and on the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all of the flesh, all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And so he gives this, uh, this um, headship even to the animals. It was a distorted headship that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden for sure. But there's still that sense that animals are afraid of humans, even some of the more powerful ones, it doesn't make sense. There's a, there's a sense still even today that God is restraining them from just going and mauling all the different people that they see or using us as food. There's something that's restraining them even today. It's a very pale comparison compared to Adam and Eve, but there was something in the midst of the growing animal population and the slower growing human population that didn't wipe them out. And then he said to these, these animals shall be food for you. He's opening it up also to the animal world. And so it's one of God's things. It's one of his provisions. And it makes sense if they were going to have the skins for clothing, right? And they were going to sacrifice the animals as a way of confessing, as a way of praising God. But God also turns over this ability to eat them as meat. So it's not a sin to have red meat. Just so you guys know, it's actually commanded by God. Probably in moderation, if you have cholesterol issues, but we move on. <laughs> every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you now everything. But you shall not eat flesh while its life, that is, its blood, is in it. And for, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it. And from man. From this fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made God, man in his own image. 
And so then he gives this warning against murder, doesn't he? He says, if you kill any man like Cain killed Abel, by man you will be killed. He sets up capital punishment right then and there. He says, that, and you had to imagine that the world of Noah's day was filled with that kind of stuff. You see it in Lamech, you see it in some of the descendants of Cain. But God says, no more. It's not okay. If you remember when we went through the, the story of, of Cain and Abel, Cain's or Abel's blood was crying out to the Lord from the ground. Can you imagine that from God's perspective? If he hears the blood of every murder in the world crying out from the ground, calling out for vengeance, right? It must be deafening. And then you add to that all the abortions and all the needless kind of stuff that we add to that. It's got to be almost a surreal thing. And then he says, you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply. And again, encouraging them to go out and then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring with you, after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again there shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. And so one of the things that you can know is that the earth will not be destroyed by water. You may know what will be destroyed by. Peter tells us fire. fire. Fire is actually what it's going to be destroyed by. That's part and parcel of the end times. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember that my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again be become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So every time you see a rainbow, right? It should bring you back to this promise that God's got you that the fact that you're here praising him today means that he's been with you to this point in your life. That his promise is that I will keep on strengthening you. I will keep on working and walking with you on this earth until you're with me in heaven. Don't ever give that away. Just ironically, we've taken that amazing symbol of the rainbow and today turned it into something very different. And yet the promise still remains. And it's something 2,000, well, what is it now, 4,000 plus years later that he's kept. Let's stop at that point. We'll go into Noah's descendants next week. But part of what, I, and let me just pray and I'll work it into that, I guess. Father, we, we thank you for tonight. Going through the flood narrative, when it's not the, the Sunday school version, it's a very sobering thing. It's a recognition that you are a God of love, but also you're a God of judgment that you are an incredibly patient God, long-suffering in every possible way, giving us time, giving us opportunity to come back to you. You send us your spirit again and again and again, calling us back. When we repent, you come to us, you pursue us, you forgive us, you renew us, you begin us, give us new lives, you allow us to begin again. Father, you are a God of love and you are a God of judgment. And our prayer today is that 
Boy, as we look at our lives, Lord, we're, we're filled with some of those feelings of both. We, we know there's sin in our life that needs to be judged, and so we repent to you so that we can receive that forgiveness instead. And your promise is that will always be the case. We can always come to you and instead of receiving the judgment, receive grace. Be ones that you save on this earth and protect on this earth until we're with you in heaven. This Christianity thing is not a hard thing. You made it so easy. Just come to you, say we're sorry, and receive your power and your forgiveness and your strength to move forward. Father, prayer today is that you would move our hearts to that place of repentance, that place of seeking you. And then as we come to you, that you'd fill us with your peace and your forgiveness and your strength. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.